That was the Drew University Orchestra playing at the 2020 commencement via Zoom. Graduations, like everything else this spring, have gone virtual because of the coronavirus. Are we any closer to solving this pandemic than we were when classes shut down two months ago? Drew's resident virologist has some answers. Hi, I'm Kevin Coughlin from MorristownGreen.com. Thanks for tuning in. Brianne Barker knows viruses. She's an associate professor with a biology degree from Duke and a PhD in immunology from Harvard. She hosts the podcast This Week in Virology. Back in March, she gave a pandemic primer. What have we learned since then? Is this virus invincible? Can your cat give it to you? Should you wear a mask? Should your cat wear one? Which fomite should we fear the most? What's a fomite? Are pangolins to blame? What's a pangolin? Is your other still significant? Is web conferencing our last growth industry? Let's find out. Brianne Barker, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. If you ever had to explain to someone your career choice in immunology, you could probably point them to the Drew commencement. <laughs> I have you know, always been interested in different aspects of infectious disease, and I never quite realized uh, the, all of the ways that working on these things would be incredibly important in my life. Um, you are, as I said, an immunologist and a biologist, and uh, you gave a wonderful uh, presentation online at the beginning of the pandemic. Thank you. And I want to ask you, I guess I want to start with, what do we know now about this disease that we did not know then, a few weeks ago? One of the biggest things that we um, know now is that there are a lot of people who can uh, transmit this virus before they have symptoms or without symptoms. That is different than many of the other respiratory uh illnesses that most people think about. And so it's really changed um, some of the ways that we've thought about how to best combat this disease. Um, we've realized that we can't just think about, well, do you feel sick or not? Um, we also have to make some precautions for everyone because we know that there are people who are not sick who can still transmit. So this this word asymptomatic, uh, what what does it really mean? Can can you have COVID without ever developing any symptoms at all? So that that's a little bit of um, an area that scientists are still working on. Some scientists love to debate whether or not asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic is the right word. So is it just that you could have COVID with no symptoms ever, or that you? Um, are able to transmit the virus before the symptoms start. It definitely looks like you can transmit and you are contagious before you start to feel sick. It's still a little bit up in the air whether everyone who is infected with this virus starts to feel sick. I would lean towards, just from my general virology knowledge, the idea that there probably are some people who either don't feel sick or don't feel sick enough to sort of make note of it. This plays into the whole question as we uh, gradually start to reopen our economy and uh, our daily lives, uh, the question of masks mm -hmm. and, you know, what a mask can and can't do for you. And it seems to 
play into this whole uh, concept of being asymptomatic. T- tell us what a mask can and can't do, and should we be wearing them in public? Right. And uh, this is also a really nice example of ways that scientists have taken new data um, that's come out in the process of this um, epidemic and sort of tweaked their recommendations a little bit. Um, originally, some people were less excited about masks, um, but we now realize that masks are incredibly important. The biggest thing that a mask will do is it will actually block you from transmitting to others. So if you are wearing a mask, other people around you are protected quite a bit. If you have the virus, you will not transmit it. Um, It does protect you some from acquiring the virus from other people. And so if we were all wearing masks, then we would be very well protected. And part of the reason that I wear masks when I'm out in public is to make sure I'm protecting all the other members of the community. Does it have to be an N95 mask? You know, an N95 mask is going to uh, filter 95% of particles at a certain size. um, And that's certainly great. But any type of mask is going to be better than nothing. The six-foot rule is that is that arbitrary? Is the science proving that that's the magic distance? The science has been changing on that, and I've seen a few different things in the past couple of days. It's not completely arbitrary. Uh, there is some data on how far some of these aerosols can travel. Six feet, I would say, is something people should be thinking of kind of as a minimum. I've been reading some things that suggest that the duration of your exposure counts for an awful lot. So perhaps if someone goes jogging past you, your odds of getting it from that person because it's a brief encounter may not be so much as if you spent 10 minutes playing cards with that person. That's probably really true. One of the questions that a lot of scientists um, are really interested in right now is trying to figure out what dose you need to get in order to become infected. And so that help will help us answer a lot of different questions. Now, of course, you can imagine you can't really fully test that by giving people different doses um, because you don't want to actually infect people. But we need to know that initial dose. It is unlikely in a short encounter you would get a large enough dose to be infected. But if you were playing cards with someone, then there you would probably be around them for a longer period of time. And you might actually have those cards in your hand where you could physically be moving the virus. So someone's normal breathing, exhaling during a conversation, is that likely to give you a big enough dose? Um, We do see a virus transmitted um, by talking normally. Um, So you can measure virus that is uh, transmitted by talking and that is transmitted by breathing. I should note that you and I are separated by several miles here. Yes, absolutely. We are talking uh, virtually. (laughs) (laughs) When you gave your talk in March uh, online, um, you listed a, a, you posted a chart that had some symptoms of Mm -hmm. coronavirus versus the cold and the flu. Yes. Uh, Have we learned about different, different or new symptoms that we didn't know about them? Any particular virus that is going to um, infect you uses some kind of receptor to get into cells. And the receptor will 
influence what kinds of cells get infected. And people have learned that a lot of cells have the receptor for this virus. And as a result, lots of parts of your body seem to be able to be impacted. And we see a few different types of symptoms. Um, So there are some patients who have some pretty severe GI symptoms. So they might have, they might be throwing up or they might have diarrhea. There are some patients who seem to lose their sense of smell uh, for short periods of time. And we also have seen some patients who very late in the disease have a lot of issues with blood clotting. Uh, There was also a study that came out yesterday that looked at some patients um, on autopsy and they seemed to have a surprising amount of effects in their kidneys. And so we might start to think about what types of symptoms we could see uh, based on that kidney uh, disease. Although, like I said, that only came out yesterday. Are any of these symptoms similar to what you would see with MERS or SARS? I think that there was a little bit of sort of the GI complications with those, but largely those were uh, are very much respiratory infections. It's really about the respiratory infection in those cases. Now we're starting to hear about this um, condition, pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome mm-hmm. with, young, with kids. Yes. What do we know about that so far? Well, one thing that we know about SARS-CoV-2, and this is also true of the original SARS, sometimes called SARS Classic, MERS, and quite a few other infectious diseases, is that some parts of the disease are based on your immune system overreacting. There are people who are actually talking about there being three phases in the SARS-CoV-2 disease process. The inflammation and immune overreaction being the second of those phases. And it looks like we're seeing this syndrome in kids that's not terribly well studied, but it is a syndrome with the immune system making too much of a response, too much inflammation. This is something that had been seen with a few other um, infections in kids before, and people are still trying to figure out what's going on. Very fortunately, we had um, some physicians who noticed it quickly and were able to announce their findings um, to others. And so other doctors started looking for it. And once they started looking, we were able to get more and more diagnoses. Um, And so I think we're in the early stages of figuring out what's going on here, but it does look like sort of this excess inflammation, which is a piece of what we see in adults. And so it has some similarities, uh, but it's it is very novel. And we think that that is uh, related to COVID. Yes, we do think that it is related to COVID. And is that the same as the Kawasaki disease we're hearing about? It is similar to Kawasaki disease. So Kawasaki disease is the sort of example of inflammation that we see in kids with certain infectious diseases. There are a few features that seem to distinguish this from Kawasaki disease, but that's sort of the closest example that many physicians have to what they're seeing here. So we thought initially that kids might get a free pass on this illness, uh, COVID, but apparently not. We've known for quite a while that kids can be infected, but that infection didn't necessarily lead to disease. So that kind of goes back to what we said earlier about asymptomatic infection. But now it looks like there can be some serious complications in kids. Have any of your uh, colleagues come down with COVID? 
I am uh, part of a sort of community of scientists who talk on uh, various uh, communication and social media platforms. And some people I know in those arenas have. Uh, fortunately, none of my colleagues at Drew, to my knowledge, have. So when you entered the field of immunology, did you ever anticipate something like this? When I entered the field, not really. Um, since I've been at Drew, uh, I teach a course called Emerging Infectious Disease. And we do talk about sort of the the likelihood of some sort of new uh, disease emerging. It's something that we've known in the field was a possibility for a long time. And we've studied how other infectious diseases have emerged. But much of the, the past few months for me has been a little surreal in that suddenly I'm realizing I'm living through some of the things I've only ever just read about. I don't know that I thought that was really ever going to be part of my life. Have you watched Pandemic on Netflix? Oh, I've watched uh, Pandemic on Netflix. I've watched all sorts of things. <laughs> I show a lot of infectious disease movies to students, and so I, I am up on my infectious disease movies. <laughs> Which one comes closest to nailing what we're in now? You know, there are pros and cons to the movie Contagion, but they did have some pretty good scientific advisors. And there are some pieces that I always really like about the movie Contagion. I sort of laugh because uh, the traditional joke in the field about the movie Contagion was that they were doing things incredibly quickly. And we would often say, man, I wish that was real. I wish we could really study things that quickly. And some of those things we're actually achieving during this uh, pandemic. So that's been a really interesting experience. Along those lines, there have been some optimistic uh, predictions about a, a vaccine, but realistically, how quickly do you think we'll have a vaccine that's any good? There are a few different ways that the vaccines that you have received in your life work. And there are also some ideas people have for new technologies for vaccines. One of those new technologies is being used um, in making a uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. If I'm remembering correctly, I think there are 60 vaccines in trials right now. Some of them use the sort of traditional technologies. Some of them use newer technologies. The reason why I mentioned the one that is using the newer technology is if it works, it is probably going to be pretty quick. And we might have something, you know, in 2021, let's say. And that would be sort of remarkably quick, but it would be partially because we've got this new technology working. If not, then it could be a little bit longer. What's the technology called? Basically, what they are doing is that they are using a type of vaccine called an mRNA vaccine where they're actually using the genome or some some material from the genome as part of the vaccine. Because we know a lot about viruses and we can get a lot of information about their genome sequences pretty quickly, we know a lot about how to work with RNA. Um, this is something that we can make really quickly. There have been similar vaccines tried for our SARS and MERS in animals, and they've worked really well in animals. And so this vaccine is in phase one human safety trials right now. We want to make sure that all of these vaccines can go through their full safety and efficacy trials because we don't want to go with something that could cause any potential issues and harm to the public. And so, you know, it's going to be next year. Every year we get a new influenza vaccine. So what's the big deal here? So we do get a new influenza vaccine every year. But the what we know is that the influenza virus changes in particular ways 
And we actually choose the strain for the influenza vaccine about at least nine to 10 months before the vaccine um, is available. So typically they will pick a strain in January and say, we think this is going to be the um, predominant strain next year. And they'll go from January to September or October producing that vaccine. And they have kind of a very standard way of producing the vaccine. The general vaccine has is been shown to be safe and effective, and they're just plugging in one different piece for influenza each year. So why can't they plug in the COVID piece? SARS-CoV-2 is a completely different type of virus than the influenza virus. So they are both viruses that use um, RNA for their genetic material. But, you know, this is like comparing, say, a corgi with a Great Dane. They're totally different types of viruses. What do we know about the lethality of this uh, particular virus? In, in the early going, it seemed like it had a very uh, high rate of fatality, but the data was, there wasn't enough data really. What, what do we know about how this stacks up to other viruses? It certainly seems, again, compared to say influenza, to be uh, a virus with much more lethality and also a virus that leads to significantly more disease even when people are surviving. Absolutely. Uh, you're right that the data was not there at the beginning and it's still a little bit tricky um, with the data because we don't have a great number of how many people are infected. And without that number, um, it's hard to come up with a, an idea of what percent die because we need to know who were infected at the beginning. The latest uh, numbers I saw from Morristown indicated that approximately 470 residents had tested positive for COVID-19. That's in a town of about 19,000 people. Right. Uh, what can we extrapolate, if anything, from that ratio? I think that that's a little, it's a little hard to extrapolate things. The, the best thing we could do is if we were to do testing kind of randomly on people, my guess is that most of those people who have tested positive were people who were feeling pretty sick. And so we're getting a good percentage of those who have symptoms who are positive, but we're not measuring that asymptomatic infection very well. If you look at all sorts of different studies that have been done in different places, the percent of people who are testing positive varies really widely. And if you notice, in some cases, they were actually going door to door and testing everybody. In other places, they were testing only people who felt sick enough to get tested. And they see different percentages of everybody versus people who are sick. So I don't know enough about who's getting tested in Morristown. My understanding is it's probably mostly people who are feeling sick. And so I think that we need to be a little broader before I'd be ready to make any conclusions. It appears across the country that a disproportionate number of African-Americans are um, being infected by this disease. Why would that be? Um, I think that there could be a lot of reasons there. So we can think about access to healthcare um, of different groups. We can think about things like that. There are some questions about whether there might be differences in the amount of receptor or immune genes. But I think that it's really hard to separate that from some of the sort of other types of access issues. I think that I've seen data on 
the ethnicities of people who are in different types of essential jobs, where there are a lot of African-Americans who are in some of the, the jobs that are listed as essential workers. And so I think that there are a bunch of social factors that are a big part of this. And those will overwhelm any other types of biological factors. You're listening to MorristownGreen.com. Our guest is Drew University virologist Brianne Barker. When we come back, we'll learn about antibodies, doorknobs, and bat saliva. There are lots of things that I never expected that I would have to know a lot about. We're doing our best to help Greater Morristown stay informed during this challenging time. And we need your help. If you can, please make a contribution at morristowngreen.com donate. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the Morristown Green podcast and reach a large audience that lives within earshot of your business or organization, please drop me a line at morristowngreen at gmail.com or give a call at 973-944-944. 0530. What do you think are the odds of a resurgence of this in the fall or during the flu season? Uh, will will summer sunlight, you know, kill this virus? I don't know that summer sun, sunlight is going to necessarily, you know, kill this virus too much. We're seeing this virus do very well in countries in the tropics and in places where it's currently summer. Um, so it doesn't seem like the summer sunlight has been a big difference there. There are just so many people who are susceptible that um, it makes it pretty easy for this virus to keep going forward. I think that we are likely to see this virus sticking around for quite a while, moving through the population. And so we need to really think carefully about uh, the ways that we are acting in public moving forward. Uh, in terms of a definition here, we tend to refer to this as a living thing, this virus. <laughs> Technically, it's not really a living thing, but it's an active thing, right? Can you explain that? Yeah. So I laughed because this is a, uh, a big virologist argument point. So viruses are able to you know, reproduce, cause damage to other cells, and do all sorts of interesting things. But viruses are only able to reproduce when they are in some kind of host cell. So if they are left on their own, they can't do anything. They have to take over um, another type of cell. And so because they can't reproduce on their own, officially they're not classified as living. But that's a whole uh, many biology classes worth of arguments um, that I have with my students. These are little dollops of protein, correct? They're, they're protein. And so this virus has um, a lot of protein. It has a lipid layer on its outside, and it has um, some RNA inside of it that makes up its genome. So when we talk about how long it can, quote unquote, live on different kinds of surfaces, fomites, is that what we're talking about? Fomites. Fomites. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Still learning. So what are we talking about when we say it can live on a doorknob for X number of hours or whatever? It's a good question for a couple reasons. The idea is that if the virus were to be on a doorknob for a couple of hours and you were to, say, touch it or something like that, that it would not have degraded. It would still be able to infect your cells. 
So you could try to imagine whether or not the virus maybe would have dried out and become inactive and unable to replicate if it found new cells. That would That's what we mean by it sort of dying. That's what soap does to it, right? So, soap actually destroys the lipid layer and pulls the virus apart. So it's no longer able to replicate. And you could imagine the virus sort of drying out and becoming sort of inactive in pieces. So what have we learned over these last few weeks about how long this thing remains viable on different surfaces? Which surfaces does it remain active or potentially active the longest? So it seems as though it's active the longest on things like plastic or uh, sort of metals like steel. And so we want it to make sure that we are, you know, cleaning those well. That's probably going to be in In some cases, I think I've seen up to 72 hours for some of those surfaces. One thing that we should be aware of is the way that those experiments are done is that they actually look to see whether or not the virus's genome is present. They don't sort of swab the doorknob and try to grow the virus. And so it's sort of this question of, can you find any trace of the virus present? So I would say that 72 hours is sort of a maximum. You can still find traces of the virus present, but no one has actually sort of gone further to show that the virus can grow. And just because you can find a trace of the virus at 72 hours doesn't mean that the amount that originally started out on the doorknob is the same amount that's there later. There's certainly a decrease in the dose. So how do you handle your groceries when you bring them home? Typically, the first thing that I do with my groceries when I bring them home is I set them down and I wash my hands. And then I make sure to um, take out the pack- take things out of packaging. Where, I, where there is external packaging, I might get rid of it and um, just really worry about sort of hand washing and things like that. You know, I think that there are other places that are a bigger risk than uh, just the groceries. And so hand washing to me is actually the most important thing. Hand sanitizer, will that do in a pinch? Um, Hand sanitizer will do in a pinch. You need to use hand sanitizer for longer than you think um, in terms of rubbing it into your hands. And it is not as good as washing with soap and water. Um, If you don't have access to soap and water, you go for it with the hand sanitizer. But it's certainly not uh, quite as good as soap and water. And should we should we stop using antibacterial soaps? In terms of COVID nineteen, it's it's less of a, a big deal. But in ter- but overall, I would say yes. When we're using antibacterial soaps, we're putting some pressure on the bacteria in our home environment to become resistant to uh, things like antibiotics. And when they're resistant they might infect us and be hard to treat. So soap by itself is great at getting rid of microbes. We don't need any kinds of particularly fancy soaps. Sarah, any uh, evidence so far to suggest that if you have had COVID, you have some immunity built up? That's something people are trying really hard to study. I would say that that is very likely based on what we know about um, immunology and what we know about virology. It seems like that is probably going to be the case, the way that it's the way that it works for most other viruses. And many patients who have recovered from their COVID infection have antibodies in their blood that can actually be um, harvested and given to other people. 
And so um, that's this use of convalescent serum that some people are talking about. So if convalescent serum can work, then yes, you should be making immune responses just fine. Where do we stand right now uh, testing-wise? Uh, we've been hearing about going from swabs to saliva tests. You just mentioned uh, antibody testing. Mm -hmm. Tell us where we're at with tests right now. The original tests tested for uh, the virus genome, and uh, those tests took a little while to um, be approved by the FDA and get out into the public. Those show that a person is currently infected. We have uh, since seen a bunch of different antibody tests get approved. And those antibody tests can be pretty nice because they actually show if you've ever been infected. Um, so were you infected in February versus whether you're infected right now? And so that might give you some idea of whether you were infected in the past, whether you might have some immunity going forward. Because of some of the delays in in coming up with the uh, tests that looked at the genome, looked at the nucleic acid, they went relatively fast with approving antibody tests. And as a result, different companies' antibody tests have different levels of effect. Um, some of them are better than others. There's actually one from a company called Roche that's in New Jersey that is really, really, really good. That's kind of the one caveat to antibody tests right now is that a bunch of companies have made them. I think they're going to be something that are going to be used pretty frequently going forward so that we can see who has developed a little bit of an immune response. Um, but right now, we've got to make sure we know exactly which tests are the most useful. The Roach test that you just mentioned, does it give you a quick turnaround? Is it invasive? Is it expensive? The Roach test is using um, blood samples. It's a pretty quick turnaround, and it, it should be um, something that uh, healthcare providers, doctor's offices um, can do pretty quickly. How about the saliva test? That sounds like the easiest one to do. Yeah, so the saliva test um, is relatively easy. In a lot of cases with the saliva test, they are looking for the virus itself. And it's... One thing that's really nice is that with the swabs that people were using in the past, they would need to get super deep into your sinuses. Um, and sometimes you might test negative, not because you actually were negative, but because someone didn't swab deep enough. Huh. Um, and so with saliva, it's a little bit easier to get a good sample and to make sure that you're getting a sample that will test positive correctly. And so that can, will be really useful in our public health arsenal. You know, if that nasal swab didn't make you want to practice social distancing, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Um, I, you know, you looking at, look at things like that, it just does not sound like a fun time at all. Did the, uh, did the CDC drop the ball back in um, early uh, January, February, that time period? Um, you know, there are certainly some questions about what they did. It's not totally clear to me why the CDC decided that they wanted to design their own test instead of basically using the same test that some other countries had already designed and were already using correctly. Was the World Health Organization test okay? The World Health Organization test was okay. And so why the CDC chose to make their own instead of going with the World Health Organization test, I'm not sure about. 
and it wasn't clear. Some of the CDC tests shipped out and had some problems, and I don't know that they were as transparent as they could have been about what problems some of those tests were having. I want to ask you also about some questions that I get from time to time from people. Can your pet, your dog, your cat, catch COVID or transmit it? There is some evidence that keeps coming out about cats, that cats may be able to um, get this virus and may be able to transmit the virus. I actually saw the first study of cats transmitting this morning. There's sort of this open question about cats, and that's true of both your cat, who is your pet in your house, as well as some of the tigers at zoos around. There isn't really much evidence for dogs. Well, that's good news. Not for those of us who like cats. <laughs> <laughs> Are pangolins to blame for this whole thing? It's a, a that's an interesting it's an interesting question. T- tell us what a pangolin is. Yeah. <laughs> so a pangolin. Did, I didn't know. I'd never heard of one before. Yeah. Ball, so uh, a pangolin is an animal that is found in different t- parts of Asia. It has uh, some scales, um, and it's sort of an exotic animal. It happens to be one of the most trafficked animals in the world in terms of um, its meat being a delicacy. So they're actually quite endangered. And people have found there are some coronaviruses in pangolins that have some similarities to SARS-CoV-2. There are a lot of coronaviruses out there. There was a study done in 2013 where scientists went into a cave in uh, China and just sort of did a survey of what viruses um, they could find. I mentioned that because the closest virus that we know of to this virus was found in those bats. Most of the virus looks very similar to a bat coronavirus. There is uh, another segment that looks pretty similar to a pangolin virus. So it's possible that this virus could have partially gone through pangolins, but I'm not sure we fully tracked down the source. Um, If you look at, say, the original SARS, when I was learning about the original SARS uh, in graduate school, I also learned about a lot of different animals I'd never heard of when I was finding out about animals um, that were transmitting that virus. I would guess, this is a, this is really a guess, that we have identified maybe 1% of viruses that exist. And so, There are lots of viruses in lots of animals and plants and other things that we don't know about. Whether or not this virus is coming from pangolins or bats or some other um, animal that we just don't look at very often is is not totally certain. It sounds like it all argues for a vegetarian diet. (laughs) Well, I think it argues for us thinking uh, very carefully about our relationship with a lot of different parts of the world. You know, we we need to think carefully about our our actions and sort of their long-term consequences. We we think that the 2014 Ebola epidemic, you know, came from a bat and part of the reason why there were bats and people in the same place leading to that epidemic had to do with a deforestation of a certain area where the bats didn't have anywhere else to live, so they moved to where the people were. And so I think that we just need to think more broadly about how many things are interconnected that may play a role in our health. Is this from from people eating bats or being bitten by bats? Or how is it jumping from 
one to the other? There could be a lot of different things. I guess it could be a people eating bats, but I think that's less likely. It turns out that a lot of these bats live pretty close to other animals like pigs. And so we know of another virus that is spread from bats that are um, depositing waste uh, near some pigs. And so then when we have, uh, we get some pork, it's contaminated by bat waste. Mm. Bats also, a lot of the the bats that are involved with some of these infectious disease transmission uh, really like to eat fruit. And a lot of times what they'll do is they'll go to fruit trees and they will eat fruit. And in some cases, they will eat the fruit halfway and have saliva on it. And then other animals can come and eat that half-eaten fruit and get a virus from the bat. (laughs) Things like that. Um, And so there are actually, you end up, again, when you study infectious diseases, um, learning a lot of really broad biology that I didn't necessarily expect when I was a student. Sounds pretty gross, too. A lot lot of pretty gross things. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, there There are lots of things that I never expected that I would have to know a lot about. Coming up in our final segment... We'll put bat poop behind us and look to the future. It's not going to be like we're going to snap our fingers and everything will be the way that it was. You're listening to Morristowngreen.com. We've been working nonstop to bring you the stories of how this once-in-a-century pandemic is challenging our community. We need your help to keep going. If you can, please contribute to Morristowngreen.com slash donate. And if you'd like your business or organization to be featured right here, become a sponsor of the Morristown Green podcast. Drop me a line at morristowngreen at gmail.com or give a call at 973-944-0530. It seems like our immune systems are, are pretty hardy and resilient. We've lasted all these many, you know, millennia. Yes. And we have had terrible pandemics like 1918 that killed, I don't know, 50, 60 million people, I think. Is it possible, though, for a virus to wipe out our entire species? Probably not. There is this one part of our immune system where we have some really cool uh, genetic diversity. So every person has a different um, set of genes in in this part of their immune system. Um, This is why it's so important to do matching for transplants, because you have to find someone who has sort of the very similar genes to you, um, which might be rare. And because of that, basically for any virus that's out there, somebody has the awesome immune genes. Unfortunately, some of us might have not so great immune genes, but as a population, there's somebody out there for every uh, virus that has awesome immune genes that will help them. Um, and so as a population, we're in pretty good shape. There's a gene for everyone. There is a gene for everyone. Uh, what do we know about uh, treatments? Any any treatments yet that have proven effective against COVID? I mean, aside from Clorox, say? <laughs> yeah. I, don't Please don't drink Clorox. So right now, um, the there is a treatment of a drug called remdesivir. It's an antiviral drug that has seemed to have some positive effects, although all of the data has not yet been released on remdesivir. That's probably the one that has the best data behind it. And there are a lot of things that people are sort of in the process of trying right now. 
that haven't gotten sort of to the point of having enough data for us to be able to really recommend them. This is your your career and your life. Who do you go to for information that you can trust about what's going on with COVID? So I, you know, get a lot of information from, uh, you know, the CDC and local health authorities, as well as talking to a lot of my colleagues in science. Um, there are also a few really great uh, science reporters who've been doing a wonderful job. Um, one of them is uh, someone named Ed Yong. Um, and so I, you know, will read a lot of what they are uh, talking about and spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues. TWIV gives me a lot of references and keeps me pretty up to date. You can do a plug here for your podcast, um, which is? Uh, so I am on a podcast called This Week in Virology or TWIV. Um, you can find us at microbetv.com or on any podcast player. I got to get this question in here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not not naming any names here. Of course. But, uh, it's the significant other question. Uh-huh. I get this from time to time. Is it safe for me to be with my significant other right now during this period? If you and your significant other are have been quarantining together, then that's great. Um, and you should continue doing so. And you can, you know, hang out in whatever way you so choose. If you have been separate, um, you probably don't want to get together, you know, once a week or something like that. So it's really a question of, you know, have you been quarantining together for a longer period of time or not? You should stick with your quarantine. Stick with Zoom? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Whoever you've been quarantining with, you stick with them. All right. Um, so moving on from our Dr. Ruth segment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now we go to the crystal ball uh, portion of our program, uh, the new normal. Every day we get new executive orders from the governor, slowly opening different aspects of our lives. In your view, how should we be approaching this? And uh, what is normal going to look like for us going forward? When the changes to our life, lives all really happened in March, it was really drastic. It went from kind of the way things were to this totally different thing. Um, I don't think people should expect the same kind of drastic shift back. It's not going to be like we're going to snap our fingers and everything will be the way that it was. Um, I think that we're going to have a period of time where we're going to have to think really carefully about keeping social distance, about making sure that say restaurants are at sort of lower capacity and we aren't as packed closely together. Maybe our flights won't have people in the middle seats. You know, we should all be thinking about wearing masks and doing whatever we can do to protect ourselves and sort of other people around us. Um, and so I think that we're going to have to sort of overall have a little bit of a shift in our thinking in terms of what types of things we can be doing to protect those and those around those around us and ourselves. Are we out of the woods yet? Uh, we are not yet out of the woods. Um, there are a huge number of people right now who are still susceptible to this virus. When, you know, this virus was starting uh, a few months ago, there were a couple of chan transmission chains leading into this area. If we were to have everybody go back to normal right now, there might be hundreds of transmission chains that got started. Um, and so this could actually... Uh, lead to a pretty big spread if we were to just switch things overnight. Um, so we really need to think about ways to um, be careful and to act responsibly. So what would those things be? I'm trying to envision how we would 
navigate our lives constantly looking over our shoulder for a virus. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this means thinking about thinking carefully about what you what situations you do or do not need to put yourself in and thinking about whether or not people need to be close together. We might have to think about, say, medium-sized gatherings largely happening outside for a while. Happily, it's going to be summer, so that's okay, um, so that people can be spaced out. And generally trying to be very cautious, um, maybe, you know, washing hands as we go into school or work at the you know entrance to our workplaces, just all sorts of things that might help a bit in terms of stopping transmission. You think a year from now, Drew University will have a regular commencement ceremony with people and mortarboards flying in the air? I certainly hope so. Thank you, Brianne Barker. Always happy to uh, talk with you, and I'm hoping this is helpful. Our thanks to Brianne Barker of Drew University. Check out her podcast, This Week in Virology. Thanks also to the Center for Cooperative Media at Montclair State University for helping get the Morristown Green podcast off the ground. Our background music is by Domenico Randazzo. You can find him at domenicosounds.com. You can find me, Kevin Coughlin, at morristowngreen.com until the stimulus checks run out. In the meantime, scrub your fomites. See you on Zoom. <laughs>